Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Hello, Restoring the Soul listeners. Welcome to the show. A few months ago, I had a speaking engagement and some other meetings in Nashville, Tennessee. And one of the real highlights of my time there was the opportunity to spend some time with my friend Nate Larkin, who is my guest today on the program. There are so many things I appreciate about Nate and the impact that he's having through his life and heart. I love his pastoral heart to reach men in some of the darkest places in their lives. I love Nate's ability to go deep in conversation and deep into the heart of what matters. I love his story. It's a story not unlike my own of redemption out of profound pain and failure and brokenness. It's a story where sexual addiction and deception and living a double life while in ministry led to a point of crisis that eventually led to and continues to lead to a whole new way of living. So I actually want to jump right into the conversation, but first a few details about Nate, because you'll want to be sure to check out some of these resources. Nate is the author of two books, the first, which is a must-read if you are on a journey of healing from any kind of sexual brokenness. It's called Samson and the Pirate Monks, Calling Men to Authentic Brotherhood. Uh, Everybody hears that name and they go, what? What is Samson and the Pirate Monks? But this book is one that uh, I believe is one of the few Christian books on recovery, particularly about sexual compulsion and sexual addiction, that gives men a real path to freedom. In part two in the introduction, I will probably share a story about how this book impacted me um, as I was writing Surfing for God. Nate is also the author of a brand new ebook that I want you to check out, and I recently read it, and it's really, really a worthwhile book. It's called Accountability, The Life-Changing Power of Authentic Friendship, and anybody who's been around me for a while knows that I'm not a big fan of accountability, uh, but this work of Nate's um, looks at it from a very different perspective, and it's well worth the read for yourself or for your men's group or if you are a church leader for people that you're working with. 
To get a free copy of this book, Accountability, Life-Changing Power of Authentic Friendship, you can go to samsonsociety.com and download one today. In addition to being an author, Nate Larkin is the founder of the Samson Society, which is a worldwide fellowship of Christian men that are serious about authenticity, community, humility, and recovery. And the actual tagline at the website says, serious, comma, but not grave. Learn more about the Samson Society and how you can get plugged into it. You can type in your zip code and find a Samson group near you. That website is samsonsociety.ning.com. I'll spell that for you because I don't know what a ning is. SamsonSociety.ning.com. Finally, be sure to check out Nate's podcast, which now has over 200 episodes on recovery from addiction, authenticity, what it means to live in authentic community, and that is SamsonSociety.podbean.com. SamsonSociety.podbean.com, the same host system that hosts this program. So in the meantime, Let's get ready for a wonderful conversation with my friend, Nate Larkin. Nate Larkin, welcome to the program. Oh, this is great. What a, what a wonderful treat. I'm so glad you came to Tennessee. Me too. It's good to be here in Franklin. Uh, the last time we were together, I think this is our third face-to-face meeting. No, fourth, because we met at Red Rocks Park. But the last time we were together was in Toronto when we were both speaking at a Promise Keepers conference. Yeah, I do remember that. Uh, I just finally warmed up last week after that. That was a When was that? It was very cold. (laughs) True story, but I was off my medication then, and that was a difficult trip. So, Mm -hmm. But that's Mm -hmm. another conversation. For our listeners, you may be hearing creaking in the background, and this show is 100% authentic, so that's the chair I'm sitting in. Hopefully this time we will not have any more locust invasions, which was the sound of the weed eater oh, okay. over at the okay. previous <laughs> day's interview. But uh, tell me what's been going on in, in your life and in your ministry, the Samson Society. Yeah, boy, you know, I had almost come to the conclusion that my contribution to the Samson Society was over and Allie and I were going to drift off into the twilight of retirement. But uh, there's new wind, fresh wind in the sails. God really has shown up in just startling ways. And the the Samson Society came out of your book, Samson and the Pirate Monks. Yeah, absolutely. And for our uninitiated listeners, can you talk about your story and how the book came about. Yeah, well, certainly. I am a grateful recovering sex addict. Uh, Came into recovery 18, almost 19 years ago now, uh, after 20 years of active addiction. What tipped me over was my wife discovering me, not for the first time, but really uh, the time that really just kind of uh, uh, took her over the edge. And in a desperate attempt to save what was left of my marriage, really the only friendship I had, I finally found the nerve to go to a 12-step meeting, went to an SA meeting, and there met Jesus in a whole new way. Tell me about that. Yeah. It's, it's in the book, but but it's pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, you know, I had always been very, very good at church, good at posturing, always had a bright and shiny reputation. Princeton Seminary graduate, you won the preaching award there, you were the the guy. Yeah, well, I thought I was the guy, Uh, and I really thought that that public persona was the guy God loved. 
It was the guy I desperately wanted to be all the time, and I could be that guy in church. I just couldn't get that guy to breathe on his own for very long outside the building. So I had a a well-hidden secret life that uh, moved from pornography into strip clubs, massage parlors, prostitutes, Wasted an awful lot of time and an awful lot of money. and But what I regret most was actually spending my children's childhood uh, mostly disengaged. So uh, the last one was a senior in high school when I entered recovery. Everybody else was grown and gone. Um, but there in a circle of chairs in a church basement, I heard... Honesty like I'd never heard, saw transparency felt empathy, um, felt kindness. Uh, I heard Jesus there in a way <laughs> that I'd never heard him any place else and from the mouths of a bunch of Samaritans who didn't even seem to know his proper name. How, how did you hear Jesus? I heard this, I felt, maybe not heard so much as felt because this, this came in at chest level. I felt accepted, loved, uh, I felt known. That was the safest room I could ever remember being in. Wow. And for, for listeners who have never done that, walked into a recovery meeting, much less exposed all of their secrets, um, that's a really hard thing to do, especially when you're exposed, when you're raw, when you're feeling like the bottom of somebody's shoe. It must have been terrifying for you. Oh, yeah. I didn't I didn't really talk that first meeting at all. And it would be several weeks, probably months, <laughs> before I could start uh, to blurt out small pieces of my story. It was so encased in shame. Uh, I did not want to say I'm Nate and I'm a sex addict. I finally found the nerve to say I'm Nate and I'm a recovering sex addict focused on recovery. I was determined to set the land speed record for recovery. I was there just to get the secret information, master the program, graduate and get out. You mean you didn't do that? I, yeah, I, <laughs> I got the green jacket. I thought I got the green jacket. And relapse shortly thereafter. So, yeah, uh, recovery and growth and transformation—it's not something we can master, is it? No, it isn't. No, no, it's a process, and healing is a process. Healing is progressive. It's miraculous. The, I, the only category I had for the miraculous uh, beforehand was the instantly miraculous. I always prayed for instant healing, instant deliverance. Uh, and I had totally lost sight of the fact that these miraculous healing processes that God has designed into the human body are progressive. They take time. But it's, it, it is a miracle the way a cut closes and the way a broken bone mends. And if we will just submit to the healing process that's given to us in Scripture of confessing our sins to one another, praying for one another as we kind of enter into that healing stream, allow the Holy Spirit to work. Healing does come, as they say in recovery, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Yeah. 
for you, it was important that you went to a 12-step group and, and it was a secular mm-hmm. recovery group because you had mastered all the religious answers. Yes. And you were pretty good at in the religious crowd kind of posing. So right. So talk about why that was important for you because there's some people I work with and men that we both know who go, no, 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 I'm going to go talk to the pastor or yeah. do a Bible study and those things are good. But why was that important for you? It was important for me precisely for the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, my ruts were so deep. I had the explanations down. I had this thing theoretically figured out and footnoted with Bible verses. Uh, my evasions were practiced. My denial was very deeply entrenched. It was so valuable to me to have the vocabulary, the religious vocabulary taken away. And, um, and I couldn't derail a conversation by calling for prayer. Uh, as it turns out, pretty much everybody in that room uh, were Christians, but the suspension of Christian vocabulary and Christian convention somehow, I think, made it easier for the Holy Spirit to operate in the room. Talk to me about, after that first meeting, what were what would the journey was like for you? It was a lot of fits and starts. I was a champion slipper for the first two, three years. Mainly because I really did not want to join the human race. Um, I did not want to join the group emotionally. I I saw myself as there temporarily. Um, I did get sponsors. However, in my own mind, um, I was always my own sponsor. And uh, I still thought that I could figure it out that – these guys, obviously some of them had long-term quality sobriety. I wanted what they had. But I thought that they had found that piece of the puzzle that I'd been searching for. They'd found the silver bullet. And that if I just listened long enough and closely enough and got that secret information, then I would be able uh, to, uh, to, you know, just to master this drive that had mastered me for so many years. I I told myself that I wanted sexual sobriety, but that's not really what I wanted. What did you really want? I wanted moral self-sufficiency. Talk to me about that. (laughs) (laughs) Not have to trust anybody. That's right. Not have to trust anybody. Not have to trust God or anybody else. I want to be able to maintain my moral balance all by myself. I'd be happy to help anybody else. I just don't want to have to ask for help, and I desperately don't want to need help. Which, of course, fuels, I mean, that's the, those are the logs of addiction, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Patrick Carnes' third core belief that I, I can't get my needs met by depending on others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did that play out for you at home? Well, you know, it was a very tense and tenuous time uh, in our house. Uh, it was not at all clear that Allie and I were even going to stay married. Uh, it wasn't at all clear that we were going to get divorced either, but uh, we were definitely roommates. Um, there was a lot of hurt and hostility. I now understand that my wife was suffering from PTSD. It was a terribly traumatic experience for her. And she actually had been enduring low-level, but its cumulative effect was massive, low-level trauma for 20 years. She now says that what hurt most was not my sexual infidelity, but the condescension with which I treated her all those years, which, which is a natural byproduct of addiction. Addiction thrives on pride. And, of course, 
the heart of recovery is humility, finding our place in the world, becoming right-sized, the man among men. So anyway, uh, yeah, so those were a rough few years. Ironically, uh, two of the cardinal sins of my childhood helped to preserve our marriage. Uh, Allie and I, when we couldn't even talk to each other, would go down to the pub and have a couple beers and play cards. And so beer and cards uh, gave us some way to at least interact. So uh, you're not you're not Baptist? No. Oh, well, I, you know, no. I'm a Presbyterian now, so I could do it without any <laughs> guilt at all. You'd probably get a raise and a promotion. <laughs> I was a Presbyterian, too. One of the first Presbyterian churches I went to in Colorado, where I'm, where I'm based, my wife and I showed up, and this was literally two weeks after my addiction came out in 94. Uh-huh. We, we showed up, and it was small group Sunday, and outside the church there were all of these you know, tents that you put up, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they all said Coors across uh-huh. the top. <laughs> One of the members of the church was from the Coors family, and they yeah. donated. I was like, this is a church I can be a part of. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to the Presbyterians. Sure, yeah. You talked about humility as the the foundation of mm-hmm. recovery, and I would argue that that's the foundation of all true spirituality. But talk yes. to me about humility in the process of recovery and change, and and even what is humility? Because I think we get that wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but boy, that's that's that'd be that's fruit for a lot of conversation. I do know this. You know, I was convinced coming into recovery that my problem was a sex addiction, and that sex was my problem. And it stunned me when my first sponsor said, Nate, your biggest problem is you think that sex is your problem. He said, uh, sex is not your problem. It's your favorite solution. It's the medication you've been using to numb the pain caused by your deeper problems, which, by the way, are common to man. Um, And then he suggested quite strongly after we'd been meeting for a while that my biggest problem was pride. Um. And his prescription was for me to get a copy of the 12 and 12, one of the two textbooks of AA, and to read the seventh step, which begins on page 70 and runs to page 77. It's all about humility. And in that chapter, Bill W. says that humility underlies all the steps. Um, I did read that. He had wanted me to read it every day, and I did for nearly a year. I think... Uh, and, and, and I think it had some ameliorative effect, uh, I, but pride is a, is a pernicious thing. And what do you mean by pride? Because my experience of talking to people in the church yeah, yeah. is that they think pride is haughtiness, yeah. you know, walking around strutting your feathers. Yeah, yeah. But that's not what you're talking about. That's not what I'm talking about at all. For me, uh, I, it comes back to this ambition for self-sufficiency. I want to be self-sufficient. I really do. That's, uh, um, and so my sexual acting out was of the type where I really didn't have to depend emotionally on anybody else. I didn't have to be vulnerable to anybody else. I never had to risk rejection. Um, and I could insulate myself or I, I felt like I could insulate myself from need, sexual, emotional, or otherwise. Um, true humility, I think, is just um, the willingness to join the human race. I love that. You said that earlier. Yeah. Just to be, you know, in that classic phrase from 12-step recovery, just to be another bozo on the bus. 
I didn't want to be another bozo on the bus. Mm. I, if I was going to be on the bus, damn it, I was going to drive. But just to be a guy. I, I was having a conversation with someone earlier today, and we went a little bit deeper. And uh, just by virtue of my commitment to, to wanting to be authentic on this podcast, I was at a, a conference for the last three days here in Nashville with some some big names and mm-hmm. there was something inside of me where I'm not known here. Nobody knows I've written a book. Nobody knows I've run this ministry, right? As if those things really mm-hmm. matter, but yeah. in my head and my heart. Right. And I really wrestled with this sense of, you know, I don't bring anything to the table here. I've got no game. So therefore in these ever so subtle ways, mm-hmm. my mind starts to spin. Well, I need to tell them who I am and mm-hmm. everything. And, and so that idea of, um, uh, of finding our our sense of identity, our sense of okayness from yeah. what we do—that's so uh, yeah. so deeply ingrained inside of me. Yeah, yeah, me too. Thankfully, there's a process where we're accepted and loved, and we can be connected in the midst of all that. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was really helpful to me, very useful to me, to actually be sidelined from ministry, even though I'd left the pastoral ministry 15 years earlier. I always I had a knack for getting on the platform. Uh, I would be tagged early for leadership and because I can talk, I'd get a teaching position, a leading position. But for the first, oh, three and a half years of recovery, I didn't, we were in a new town, I didn't let anybody know that I even had ever been a pastor. And uh, we went to church and I kept my mouth shut. Just kind of wipe that away from your identity. Yeah, exactly. Partly because I knew, the, it's not that I didn't want to go there. I knew it would really tick Allie off if I did. Because she, she knew how much my ego was uh, propped up by that performance thing. How deadly it would be for me to go back, uh, climb back up on that pedestal and start teaching. And so it was really, really useful to shut up for a while. What did the process look like, and I'm assuming it's what does it still look like, to move from self-sufficiency and pride to humility and interdependence? Yeah. Well, you know, the, day, you know, the, the greatest act of surrender I make to Christ every day is to tell the truth to another member of the body of Christ, uh, to show them where... Uh, not just to speak in vague terms and admit that, you know, I still struggle and I still, you know, there's still a battle, but to actually say where the battle line is today and how long it's been since it, it's moved and uh, to, to get reinforcements there. That keeps you humble. Yeah, because I have to admit that I, if, if, if I'm there alone, if I insist on engaging in that fight alone, I'm signing my death warrant. I will lose. I can't stay sober on my own, Michael. I can't. And uh, not not sexually or any other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's become something bigger than sexual sobriety. Oh, it's, yes. It's the sobriety versus indulgence of pride. Yeah. Self-sufficiency. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I've found that I can, I can see, seek alternate medications. I mean, I'm <laughs> the, the more Christian acceptable things, right? That's like right, exactly. Yeah. Busyness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some of your other favorite addictions now that now that you're sexually sober? Yeah, work addiction is big. 
accomplishment. So I've got I've got a business and I employ between 15 or 20 and 20 people, depending on uh, the season. And uh, boy, I can just I can just get into work. I can get into uh, I'm kind of a promoter guy anyway. I like to get excited about new initiatives. I can medicate there. Just get together with some other fellows and hype ourselves into a frenzy and uh, not really accomplish anything, but feel like we've accomplished something. Um, I can medicate with alcohol. I have to be careful with alcohol. And uh, I talk about it uh, on a regular basis with my Silas in the Samson Society. That's kind of the equivalent of a sponsor. And my Silas is a recovering alcoholic, so he's attuned to that danger. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of ways that I can still run. I appreciate uh, your honesty about that present. For me, it's so easy to get up and speak somewhere, and I actually have done this, where I refer to the past, and there's still that sense of present. And I've got to be really conscious to talk about the ongoing struggles yeah. and the ongoing brokenness. Um, what was what was the process like to begin to entrust yourself to another man, whether it was your sponsor in the recovery yeah. program or just to begin to open up? Yeah, it wasn't easy, I'll tell you that. What made it easier was uh, the willingness of the men in those rooms to share their weakness first. I found that very disconcerting in the beginning. When my first sponsor would talk to me about his uh, his ongoing struggles. Uh, that that's not that's not a way I'd ever heard a leader talk. And um, but then what I found was, as soon as the pink cloud dissipated, I, I did have that you know brief period of insanity after first entering recovery, where it really seemed to me like I was cured and all the problems were behind me. When that dissipated and I had my first slip, it sure made it a lot easier to tell my sponsor. And I still, after, I can remember, uh, I had my first slip and I didn't call him right away. I, I waited for about three days until I got my feet back under me and I could talk about it in the past tense. Was it shame that prevented you from calling? Oh yeah, sure, sure. And my whole performance uh, orientation. I wanted to impress him. I put him in a father role, and I wanted to impress him. Um, these days, I do my best to stay out of the father role and not put people there. Um, you know, the words of Jesus carry so much weight for me. Call no man father. You're all brothers. You have a father. At any rate, yeah, so I waited a few days and then uh, rehearsed my call before I made it to him. And gave him a nice, you know, tight call and then casually slipped in at the end of a call that I had had a slip three days earlier, but I'd learned from it and I was fine. And and then I waited for the punch. Hmm. And it never came. He just said, man, I'm sorry. That must have sucked. And that did more for me than any lecture ever could have done. And that was how many years ago and all the emotion comes right back. Yeah, yeah. it was 18 years ago, 19 years ago. I think that must be what you're talking about at the beginning about that you heard and experienced and felt Jesus. Sure, yeah. 
Yeah. Man, as men, we're just so used to and expecting that punch, aren't we? Yeah, we really are. Yeah. Hmm. And I'd been punching people for years. <laughs> That's the great irony. Hmm. Um, I thought that was, you know, that was the way I served. That was my responsibility as a Christian leader. And mm. Oh, come on. So, Nate, how has your recovery in going from self-sufficiency to humility and having mm-hmm. been humiliated, yeah. which happens to all of us through exposure, how has that changed your understanding of, of God and the good news? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That's a, that's a whole series of podcasts. I'm yeah, thinking. sure. I mean, this experience in recovery opened doors and windows on the gospel I had never seen and completely uh, changed the face of God for me. Um, yeah, I did, to see myself as the prodigal and God as that father running in my direction. Um to understand that I had never lost his favor and I didn't have to earn it back. Um, yeah, I, I, I know I prayed the prayer when I was a kid and I know I walked the, the aisle either physically or mentally dozens of times growing up. But so, so I don't know at which point I became a Christian, but I'll tell you what, it really became real to me in recovery. Hmm. I don't think I ever really met God till then. I've heard so many people say that. And for me, I never consciously thought about it, but I was in a meeting one day um, and there was a quote evangelist that was doing training for our staff. And he made everybody go around the room and say precisely the moment he became a Christian. Mm -hmm. And just to mess with him, I said, I'm not sure either 1980 or July 10th, 1994. And he became very agitated. (laughs) (laughs) And and the difference for me was I I got saved in 1980, but I came to know the love of our father in 1994. And and the difference between those two is really the difference between life and death. It really is. Yeah, it really is. So out of your journey... You decide to write a book, mm-hmm. Samson and the Pirate Monks, available for twenty nine ninety five at <laughs> Thomas Nelson. Um, what what compelled you to tell your story uh, and to put it in a book? Well, um, the first half of the book is is memoir, my story, and the second half of the book is field manual for uh, a men's group. Uh, my, our, my purpose in writing the book was to inspire guys to start a meeting of the Samson Society or something like it. And actually several members of that initial Samson group contributed their stories to the book as well. Theirs are just a page long. I hog a lot more of the book than they do. Uh, but, you know, what I discovered in 12, you know, God used 12-step recovery to save my life. Um. And as I became less self-focused, I began to share with other people. I began to share with other believers. And um, I found that there are a lot of Christians for whom 12-step recovery doesn't seem to quite fit. They can't integrate it well enough with their Christian experience. Or there were those whose addiction didn't match mine and who didn't fit in the room I took them to. So we wound up starting the Samson Society, which is not a 12-step group, but it carries... Uh, the spirit of 12-step recovery. We kind of broke it down in different ways with nice biblical numbers, sevens and threes. 
And uh, that was turned out to be such a revolutionary experience for me and for the guys in that initial group. We were, we really wanted to share it, wanted to give it away. So I asked for their permission to write Samson and the Pirate Monks. They gave it to me. Uh, and they participated in its production and contributed to the book. And uh, it came out in 2007. And it's an incredible book. I might have told you this before. I read Samson and the Pirate Monks while I was reading Surfing for God. And it was one of those, oh, no, moments. Because you're a great writer. And I thought, there's no way that I can ever tell stories or my story is not going to be the same. And literally, the Saturday when I was wrapping everything up, ready to hand in the book, um, call it spiritual warfare, call it my ego, call it uh, just a moment of terror. But I just fell down on my face going, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And your book both gave me a sense of courage that it can be done mm-hmm. and the importance of telling our story. But that that ego again of, man, the comparison of, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not (laughs) Nate. And of course, our stories are different. Yeah. But uh, I'm so glad that you did write that book because I know so many men who have been helped by it. And um, through that book, you've launched Samson Societies all around the world, literally, right? Yeah. Yeah. 450 groups have started. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And and what kind of countries? Did I hear you say you were in China with Samson? Yeah, exactly. In China. uh, And... uh, in the east, or you know, in in uh, in the Near East, in Africa, those Samson groups tend to be expats, right? Uh, but I have found that uh, the the porn problem is sweeping worldwide. It, it, uh, I've I've taught in Africa, I told my story in Africa, got the same reaction there I did in China, uh, both in shame based cultures, a shock that this. You know, white-haired white guy is actually being that honest, being that vulnerable. But then turns out everybody in the room can identify with the story. And in Africa these days, a man may not have a may not have indoor plumbing, uh, but he's got a he's got a smartphone. And if he's got a smartphone, he's got the problem. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. 